Proverbs chapter 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. And she has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove, reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman of folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple... Let him turn in here, and to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Well, indeed, uh, uh, Proverbs chapter 9. So, uh, I think it we don't have to argue the case that everybody would recognize there are competing worldviews, competing ideas of what defines the good life and competing ideas of what it is to live the good life. In terms of Proverbs, they're competing ideas of wisdom and foolishness. Now, they cannot all be right because they say such different things. You might say, well, none of them could be right, and that's true, that's a possibility. Uh, some could be right and others wrong, and that's a possibility, but they can't all be right. And the big question out of that then is, how do I know that my worldview or my view of life and the good life is, is correct? How do I know the worldview shaping my life is wise? Um, and how do I know that it's actually delivering the good life I crave? Is it possible to think that my worldview is delivering the good life and actually be deceived? Well, uh, the scripture tells us, yes. It's possible to think you're in, in wisdom and yet you're in foolishness. Australians, and I may not sound like one, but I count myself as one having lived much more of my life here than, than, than in Ireland. Uh, but Australians think of themselves as very open-minded so if you're talking to Australian, they'll say, look, I'm easily persuaded by evidence and truth. And if you talk about history, they'll say, yes, and I'm persuaded by evidence and truth in contrast to past generations where it was so obvious they were so full of prejudice, racial prejudice, religious prejudice, uh, social prejudice, and so on and so forth. 
But in reality, every person has prejudice. That is, prejudice is buried background beliefs about wisdom and the good life. Uh, and these things are often things we're blind to. Sometimes we'll hear it expressed as, well, that's just the way things are in life. Probably that's a background belief, a buried background belief that just accepts without questioning. And what that means is, I think, uh, oftentimes people just copy the lifestyle that's familiar, copy the lifestyle that's been handed down to them, copy the lifestyle that they see others around them living. And from that, they say, well, if that's what the majority are doing, then that must be the good life. That must be wisdom. And then from there, most people would agree that the closed, the, the person who is closed-minded, who backs their own form of wisdom without ever examining it, is actually foolish or stupid. And what we've done, you see, as Australians, is we've got ourselves into a real dilemma. Because our society is committed to the absolute freedom of the individual. That means an individual is free to believe what they want, how they want, and should be free from even being examined or, or corrected on that view. But this is an expression of closed-mindedness. And it's in conflict with discovering the life of wisdom we crave. Because if we're going to have a worldview, it means and we, we've got to be able to examine it. And in fact, I would argue we need an external authority because we can't actually trust our own examination ultimately. We need an external authority which is both true and actually works when it comes to delivering the good life. Now, that takes us into Proverbs, because Proverbs presents God's pathway of wisdom. And it presents it as the only one that delivers the good life we crave. In fact, the Bible at other points, and, and quite repeatedly through the scriptures, the Bible says uh, what Peter says in one, uh, chapter 1, verse 18. He says that everything else is an empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. It's that idea of just taking what you've received, what's popular, what's familiar, and trying to make the best of it, even though most of us would say, hey, it doesn't actually work. Wisdom is about choices, choices, choices. That's the reality that these, that first section of, of Proverbs, chapters 1 to 9, has been building towards. Wisdom and foolishness are competing alternatives. And making right choices requires discernment and heaps of it. Wisdom is wholesome, it's desirable, it's valuable, it's satisfying. And generally, wisdom is a course of action which is reasonably obvious. But we see it all around us all the time that wisdom doesn't happen automatically. It's not something we're naturally inclined to. It's always as a choice, and I think a tough choice, 
to follow wisdom and turn away from foolishness. Chapter 7, 8, and 9 uh, emphasize this with challenging pictures or metaphors. Uh, chapter 7 w- was a sexual <clears throat> metaphor. And, the, and the, the, the thing that plays out there is the choice between true intimacy and false intimacy in the context of a, a, pa- a picture of seduction. Uh, chapter 8 was, was a treasure hunting metaphor that Dave took us through last week. Uh, the choice is between real treasure and counterfeit treasure that looks shiny, that dazzles and turns your head, but just doesn't deliver. The choice is always between finding life in relationship with God, expressing God's character in every action of life, and chasing an alternative life, a life of autonomy, a life of rejection of God's pathway. And as Dave said last week, foolishness always presents as an equal alternative. That's the sneakiness, the deceitfulness of it. It always presents as an equal alternative to God's wisdom, but it actually seduces and dazzles and and appears popular while actually destroying people. So once again, I say, to make right choices, every person needs discernment in spade loads. And chapter 9, I'm suggesting this morning, is a case study in wisdom and discernment. So critical, as I'm saying, is in this process of finding and nurturing wisdom is discernment. Now, what is discernment? Discernment's the ability to sort through apparently equal options and dig into it in a way that you can identify and avoid lies or false reality and embrace truth or true reality. Bit of a a tautology there, but for emphasis. Now, I would actually venture to say, and it's a bit sad to say, that I think discernment appears practically to be in really short supply in our world. And I think it's actually even the case among Christians that discernment is in short supply. One of the, one of the, the past greats, the theological greats, said that they, they figured that discernment was probably the last characteristic that Christians would develop. Well, come with me then into chapter 9. And what we have here is another metaphor. Uh, It's a metaphor, a party metaphor, uh, where the choice here in chapter 9 is between a life-giving and a life-destroying party. Now, it could could be a feast, it could be a party, it could be an event. I'm just using those terms interchangeably. But party is probably something we we resonate with more. So there are two competing identical party invitations. One from this woman called Dame Folly. We'll call her Dame Folly. If you look at verse 16, look at the words. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. There's the invitation. And verse 4, identical invitation. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Now these two invitations turn up in your mailbox. And at that point, they look identical. Which party will you go to? 
Each is, each is issued to the simple. Now, hear this next sentence very, very carefully. The simple is a description not of mental capacity, but of mental attitude to life. It's about an approach to life of the average person. The simple person is the average person. That's the point in, in this metaphor. It's the average person who, in a sense, is a bit aimless and drifting in life, yet, yet always looking for the next exciting thing. Uh, unthinking, at points easily believing what others say and do, yet quite defensive and headstrong when challenged. It's a strange mix, but I think that does describe the average person we, we, we rub shoulders with. The invitations are identical, but the shape of the two parties is radically different. They're different in basic appeal. If you look at verses 13 and 14, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with Dame Folly first and then come back to Lady Wisdom. So Dame Folly, that her appeal is loud and seductive. She doesn't really... And shameless, that's the word in, in English there, knows nothing, is, is probably better translated, shameless. She's right out there. She's in your face. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat in the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by her, going straight on their way. She's loud. That sounds a bit familiar. Loud, proud, and shameless. And she knows jolly well that the majority of people will just be passing right past her front door. She doesn't have to work too hard. She just needs to get their attention as they go past and suck them in. And she assumes a crowd at her party. Verse 3, in contrast, Lady Wisdom knows the average person will not be naturally inclined to accept her invitation, so she's busy pursuing individuals, pleading with them to come to her event. The two parties are radically different in aim. At Dame Folly, as we just read those verses, her biggest intent is just to fill her house. Get them all in. She cares nothing for the people she seduces into her party. So she makes it easy for people to be there. And notice there's no obvious cost of entry. She invites them into that place. If you look at verse 15 and 16, um, 17, she invites them into an environment that's familiar, that's comfortable where you can hang out with all the people you've always wanted to be around, uh, the cool people, the celebrities, the high-profile sports people, the sexy people, and so on and so forth. Verse 17, is often a, uh, water is often a picture for sexual expression in the Proverbs and the, and the Old Testament. So it's almost as if this damn folly is saying, hey, listen, guys, I just want to fill my house. Tell you what, leave your brains at the door. Leave your morals at the door. Come inside and I promise you can indulge in all the fantasies of your heart, all the desires of the secret desires of your heart you long wanted to express. Because in my place, if it feels good and everybody else is doing it, then you can be sure it's right. You can be sure I've got the good life. But we're told here that in, in truth, her party is toxic. And, and, it's a, and it's a picture of Todd Sweeney's place where the bodies are being piled up in the cellar while more people are pouring through the front door. And what do we discover? 
we discover there is a huge cost of entry to pay. But in her party, it's landed on you at the last minute. What's the huge cost of entry? Death, destruction. And by the time you realize there's a huge cost of entry, it's too late. It's pay-up time. The good life they thought they had found was actually a lifeless life. Now, in sharp contrast, Lady Wisdom is deeply concerned for those she invites. Her party, again, remember, and this is all metaphor, that's all picture language, verses 1 and 2, her party is, comes from a really solid house. We might use exchange that for the word worldview. She comes from a really solid, well-thought-out, well-constructed place. Uh, she's prepared meticulously, and she's offering a lavish feast of meats and wine, the sort of stuff that would really satisfy the body and satisfy the soul in the metaphor. But her party has a very obvious upfront cost to be paid, which she makes no bones about. Look at verse 6. She says, yeah, come to my party by all means. I really would love to have you here. But, verse 6, leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. She's saying, look, if you want to come to my party, that would be terrific. I want you there. But the cost of entry is that you must be prepared to examine your life. You must be prepared to leave behind wrong thinking of the past. You must be prepared to be pushed into unfamiliar, uncomfortable places. My party won't be a, a cock-a-hoot affair. My party will be serious. It will be challenging. But it will deliver something the other party will never be able to deliver. It will deliver life. You need to be willing to think deeply about the big questions of life. You need to leave behind your your previous sense of self in as much as you discover that to be foolish. You need to be prepared to embrace a new worldview, a new lifestyle, in short, true wisdom. I, I don't know, I don't, I'm not a big party person, but uh, you know, in, in terms of the metaphor, you can see one party is, is uh, eminently appealing, isn't it? And the other, you just think, mm. and that's exactly the point of the passage. The party that Lady Wisdom throws doesn't present like an exciting, fun party. A few, I suspect, are interested in thinking about the invitation, let alone committing to be at the party. A few are prepared to challenge popular belief of the crowd. That's what it is to be the average Australian. Go with the flow. And in brackets still say I'm evidence-based. But those who do take up the invitation to Lady Wisdom's party discover that not only is it a brilliant party, but it's actually an investment in the good life which lasts for eternity. So yeah, there's an upfront cost. But boy, the cost is nothing compared to, to what uh, the party itself delivers. So, choices, 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 and, and how we make them. Choices and why we make them. Which party 
to buy into. At first glance, the, the, the choice would appear totally obvious, wouldn't it? When you set it out the way I've set it out. You would choose life over death every time. Because remember, that is the quest of life for every single person. We want, we're actually in our heart of hearts, every person, whether Christian or non-Christian, every person is, is on that quest to find what is the good life. And so if life's on offer, then wouldn't we take life over death every time? Yes, of course we would. That's, that's the obvious choice. But here's the deceptiveness of foolishness. In reality, so many persist in pursuing the popular lifestyle of if it feels good and everyone else is doing it, then it's got to be right. It's got to be good. It's got to be the best there is. Even when the evidence suggests it's foolish. And when their own experience tells them that this life I pursued has actually failed to deliver the good life that it promised me it would deliver. It's failed to deliver the security, the intimacy, the satisfaction which I crave in my heart of hearts and which it promises. Why? Well, come to the last section. So the two party invitations form a, a bracket around the ch chapter and then verses 7 to 12 uh, dig into this question of why. Why is something so obvious not automatic? Verse 7 to 12 gives us a very simple principle, and then I'll dig into it a little bit. Verse 7 to 12 says really essentially this. Why do people pursue foolishness and, and destruction when the choice for life is obvious? Answer, very simple. It's a question of whether a person is teachable. It's a question of whether they have discernment or not. Now, Proverbs has five or six different words to describe different aspects of foolishness that are used over all the chapters. Each, remember, I say again, each describing mental attitude not mental capacity. So there's nothing wrong with people's ability to think when they're called the simple, or in verse 7, when they're called a scoffer. The simple person is now described as the scoffer. The same person, but here the word has an emphasis on being fixed in their thinking, being closed-minded. Now, I've said before, the average Australian presents as open-minded. But I would argue is actually closed-minded and unteachable. They claim to be evidence-shaped, yet generally go with the flow of what is popular. You speak to them, and they're absolutely confident that they know what life is about. And they'll back themselves in what life is about. Yet, at the same time, you're thinking, hang on a minute, you're not showing me any evidence you've actually thought deeply about this. 
And when you challenge the average Australian, man, you find how seriously they dislike challenge or correction of their worldview. They'll back themselves and their own form of wisdom every time. So totally committed to their own autonomy, their own form of wisdom, as, as they chase the good life, that in the end they interpret every circumstance as supporting what they already believe. And when things go wrong, their response is to back themselves and blame others. Why is my life falling apart? Well, because they did this and he did that and she did that. And society has let me down. Never, oh my goodness, maybe I've got the wrong worldview. In stark contrast, verse 9, the wise person knows their heart or knows something of their heart. The wise person is suspicious of their attitudes. They recognize their potential for foolishness. A few weeks ago, Bo spoke about that as the paradox of the gospel and paradox of Proverbs, that the person who's starting to nurture wisdom actually begins by acknowledging foolishness. And seeking external wisdom, external guidance, external rule in life because we've made a mess of our own lives. And we can't even sort of trust our own motivations, our own analysis to work out what's right and what's wrong sometimes. We need an external source as a reference point. In verse 10, that process of wisdom, and it is a process, verse 10 leads to the Lord. as a source of real wisdom and ultimately the source of the good life. But notice again, you see, we've said this over many weeks now, verse 10, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is, is much more than acknowledgement of his existence. It's much more than just a sort of general respect for, for God as being part of our universe. Fearing the Lord is actually craving knowledge of him that only comes through relationship with him and exposure to his character and purpose, which in turn then overflows practically into all of life. And verse 11 then sort of uh, gives some illustration of that. Wisdom or understanding of success or understanding of happiness and security of life is shaped ultimately by a person's view of God, by understanding God's character, and by relationship with him that overflows. As I take on and form the mind of the Lord in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I start to understand wisdom. I start to express wisdom. I start to live wisely in God's world. And so, in summary, and if you haven't heard anything else or haven't connected, try and listen to, to this connection here. It's, it's on the outline that's on the back of your bulletin. In summary, then, the principle of teachability or discernment is, is a process. We start with choices. And those choices, hundreds, thousands of them, will be choices either towards wisdom or towards foolishness. Over a period of time, 
our choices actually shape and form our character. So our character then will either be increasingly discerning and growing in wisdom or increasingly drifting into foolishness, greater foolishness. Choices, character, and ultimately all of that will determine destiny, life or death. Now friends, hear this. Wisdom is not simply a one-off choice that we make as Christians or or we make as people. And sometimes I think that's what we think wisdom is. Now, we we get wisdom in a one-off choice as we come to Jesus, no question about that. But nurturing wisdom and becoming wise is a lifetime progression. People do not discover life or stumble into destruction through one isolated decision. It's not one strike and you're out. But it's a process of choices. Wisdom is a process of choosing, reflecting attitude to God and reflecting conclusions about the source and shape of the good life. And ultimately, and that's what the point of verse 12 is, I spent a long time trying to work out verse 12, I think this is what it is. Ultimately, that process is for each person and each person alone to own. If you're wise, you're wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. We so readily blame other people, even for our own choices. We blame other people for the consequences of our choices. I think wisdom says that, huh, we, we can only look at ourselves for our choices and the consequences and the destiny that comes from it. When, when you look at your own character, and when I look at my character, I am me. I have to take responsibility for my character because of the product of all those choices over many years. I might like to blame other people, but I have to take ownership for it. Whether wise or foolish, it's yours to own. No point trying to scam out of it. It's still yours to own. You can blame whoever you like, but it's still yours to own. And that's why there's an urgent call in this passage to nurture discernment as the pathway to wisdom. And the climax here takes us back to the very opening verses of Proverbs, chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. Wisdom is more than intellectual knowledge. You can have a massive intellectual knowledge and still be a fool. Wisdom is applied knowledge. First of all, accumulating the right knowledge, true knowledge, But ultimately, wisdom is applying that knowledge and knowing how to apply that knowledge in every situation of life. That's discernment. And it's a paradox, as I mentioned a few minutes ago. It begins by recognizing that our natural expression of wisdom is actually foolishness and counterfeit and leads to a cheap imitation of the good life we crave. 
Wisdom begins as we recognize our closed-minded autonomy. And we, and we recognize that that has kept us from considering properly God's alternative as an alternative. And God's word says we get wisdom when we come to God through Jesus, who is the embodiment of wisdom, 1 Corinthians. And we grow in wisdom as God's spirit shapes new character in us, expressed in a willingness to self-examine and a new struggle to make every choice of life a reflection of God's character. That's what it is to grow in wisdom. And here's the appeal of Scripture. It's in Proverbs and it's right through the Scripture. Psalm, I'm going to just use two. I could have used dozens. Psalm 34 verse 8 says this, and it's a lovely picture in the context of a feast. It says this, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's an invitation to a feast. A satisfying, soul-satisfying feast. Now, how will you respond? Will you be like the bratish, closed-minded child who looks at the vegetable on the plate and says, no, nah, I'm not going to eat it. I know it's not going to be nice. I've never done that, but I heard other people have children who've done that. I don't think I even knew what vegetables was until I was a teenager, but anyway, um, uh, unless there was somebody to throw at your brothers. So there's your choice, you see. Will you be like that closed-minded child? And that's what it is. They look at the thing and they make a decision about it before they even try it. Or, different picture, will you heed the urging of Romans chapter 12, 1 to 3? You can look it up in your own time. Essentially there it says, don't be conformed to what the majority are doing on the basis that it feels right and the majority are doing it. Rather it says, be daring, be willing to be transformed by the renewal of desires and attitudes and thinking which in turn, it says, will actually lead you to prove that God's wisdom actually works, both factually and experientially. And in the end, my friends, that's what I hear all around me. In Australia, our postmodern, postmodern society said, don't tell me if something's factually correct. I want to know if it works. If I can get the experience of the good life that I'm craving. Well, Romans says, you've got to be prepared to be transformed, to walk away from old patterns of thinking, to walk into new patterns of thinking, new attitudes, new desires, a new worldview. And if you do that, Romans says, you will find the proof. It will be self-authenticating. My friends, discernment is not seen in quick, fixed decisions. And I think as Christians, we're still totally you know, hooked up on that. We just, and I include myself, we just want life to be simple. We don't want to be having to make decisions every day. Make a decision Monday morning at 9 o'clock and, and let that cover the whole week is what we'd like. At least that's what I would like oftentimes. 
but it's foolishness. Discernment is not seen in quick, thick decision, but it's seen in the way of long training and discipline. Not simply informing your mind with God's words so that you know what is right. Lots of Christians do that. They can say, oh yes, this is what the Bible says about this, this, and this, and this. Not just disciplining your will in practical commitment to doing what you know to be right. Yep, I'm going to do this and not this because that's what the Bible tells me to do. But training the heart to new delight in the Lord himself so that you follow his pathway to life because he, he in this person is supremely attractive and beautiful. I want to be like my father. I want to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, and guess what overflows out of that? And if you're a person, and I'm finishing this, if you're a person who has not yet made a choice for wisdom, and there, there will be some here this morning, whether you're in your teenage years or younger, or whether you're the other end of the spectrum and older, there'll be some here this morning who has not yet made a choice for wisdom. I say to you, take the first step now, before you leave this building today. Admit that your commitment to autonomy has led you down a dead-end road. I suspect that the fact you're here today says that something about your life hasn't quite delivered and you're looking perhaps for something else. Well, recognize your autonomy and recognize how it's took you, oh, taken you, sorry, taken you down a dead end road. Admit that your problem thus far in life is not so much a lack of knowledge or desire but an empty heart that has settled for fast food instead of the satisfying feast offered by Jesus. If you want to pray something really, really worthwhile for yourself, and I include everybody now, including myself, let, let's pray for discernment. Let's pray that we might know what is the right thing to do and that we do it because we delight in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see the deceptiveness of foolishness in our world. Help us to see how easily we can be fooled by ourselves. Lord, your word tells us that our hearts are deceptively wicked. And we think we're in charge of them, Lord, but oftentimes they're in charge of us. Help us, Lord, to look for autonomy that keeps us from your pathway of wisdom. And help us, Lord, to be willing to step away from that which we've been committed to, perhaps, Lord, for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Help us to step away from that into new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.